Okay. Come on in. Make room. Come on, let's come over to this side. Over here. Over here. Okay, come on in close. Okay, over here by me. This way. Here we go. All right. Wow, there's more of you guys all the time. Okay, are you ready to pray? Let's turn around. Everybody look over here this direction. Very good. Let's fold our hands and bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Jesus, thank you that we can be here today, that we can worship you, that we can sing to you, that we can pray to you. We pray for Children's Church that we would learn more about you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. want to get out your message outline, have that to follow along this morning while we're doing that. It is my understanding, Raleigh, that this is your last Sunday, you're moving. We need to remember to pray for Raleigh. Is this to North Carolina? Okay. Well, last I checked, there were good churches and good believers in North Carolina. So let's pray that you find some and can make those connections. So join with me. We're going to pray for Raleigh for a minute, and then we'll get started into our sermon. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would be with Raleigh as he makes this uh, move, that you would lead him to a good church, that you would put him in the fellowship of believers, that you would watch over him, keep him safe, draw him close to yourself. We will miss him. Bring him back to visit often. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. We will miss you. You know where home is. Very good. We are in Exodus chapter 3 today, and uh, unlike uh, most sermons that we will have in Exodus, we only have three verses uh, today. Exodus 3, 13, 14, and 15. But these are three hugely important verses. They are critical to our understanding of who God is. So, if you would turn with me to Exodus 3, 13 through 15, you can read along in your outline, turn in your Bible, look on your device of preference, uh, whatever uh, works best for you, I encourage you to turn there, Exodus 3, 13 through 15. Listen carefully as this is God's word. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. We need it as much as the Hebrew folks needed it way back when. We need to be reminded of what makes God great. We need to be reminded 
of who God is. We need to be reminded of what God has done. We need the glory of the Lord and we need Jesus. So we pray this morning by the power of your spirit, help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. In the summers of 1952 and 1953, I'm sure most of you remember that vividly, sports writer Roger Kahn covered the Brooklyn Dodgers for the New York Herald Tribune. And day after day he rubbed shoulders with the players and he actually got to know them all pretty well. And 15 years later, he decided that he would track them down and see how the years had treated them. And he set out with a notebook and a tape recorder, and he traveled all over the country in search of a group of men that he affectionately called the Boys of Summer. And what he found was staggering. And he put his findings into a book, and it became a national bestseller entitled The Boys of Summer. It's one of the great baseball stories in American literature. Roger Kahn's The Boys of Summer, these men who were once robust and full of youthful vigor, had almost to a man experienced the ravages of time and encountered personal tragedy. And in some ways, the saddest of all the stories in Kahn's case studies was Billy Cox. Billy Cox was the third baseman on those great Brooklyn Dodger teams. In his day, Billy Cox was the finest defensive third baseman in the game. He possessed almost superhuman eye-hand coordination and reflexes. Game after game, he would dive through the air, spear a line drive, and hear the roar of thousands of fans. And now, 15 years later, to find Billy Cox, Roger Kahn had to drive out to rural Pennsylvania to a little town of Newport, which is just north of Harrisburg. And when he inquired about Billy's whereabouts, he discovered that Billy had recently changed jobs from being a bartender at the American Legion Hall to being a bartender at the Owls Club. And when he finally found Billy, Billy suggested they go to the VFW bar to talk. It seemed as if Billy spent most of his waking hours in bars. And no longer was Billy the slim athlete of 1953. Half of his middle finger on his throwing hand was missing. And as the two of them sat down in the bar to talk, and Roger turned his tape recorder on and got his notebook out, some strange scenes began to unfold all around them. People at the bar began talking and using crass terms. This enraged woman came storming into the bar, started hitting a man on the head with a purse, and shouted, I know about the redhead. In the middle of the conversation, Cox himself got up and walked over to the billiards table and started uh, hitting a few billiard balls at the table and was muttering to himself. And Khan sat there and he recorded his thoughts at that very moment. He said, no one present I thought, except myself, could have realized that this broad-shouldered fellow tapping the billiard balls, missing half a finger on one hand, sad face, among people who would never be more than strangers, was once the most glorious glove on the most glorious team that ever played baseball in the sunlight of 
wrote that Billy Cox had become the classic example of a has-been. The glory days he experienced were so far in his past, he wondered if sometimes if they had ever really happened at all. I read the story of Billy Cox. I thought of Moses. Kind of the way it was for Moses. Years before, he had lived in the king's palace in Egypt. However, the day came, he had to flee to the desert for his life, leaving behind the glory and riches of Egypt. And for many years now, he's lived out in the wilderness on the backside of the desert, working as a shepherd for a Midianite priest named Jephthah. But then a strange thing happened. We read about it last week uh, at the beginning of Exodus 3. And uh, put yourself in Moses' sandals for a moment. You're tending a flock near a mountain called Horeb. And suddenly you see a strange sight, a burning bush, which, despite being enveloped by flames, is not consumed. And this sight caught Moses' attention. And as he moved closer, he heard a voice from the middle of the burning bush declaring, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am, on in Exodus 3, now verse 5. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you, is, you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this point, Moses covers his face. He knew that seeing God could be dangerous to one's health. The Lord continued, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. This sounds familiar because Acts 7, our responsive reading quoting these verses. It says, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And skipping down, he says, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, to be honest, if you're, you were Moses, what would you say at this point? I think Moses' response seems just about right. He says, Exodus 3.11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And I think that's a good question, Moses. Let's face it, on the surface, this command seems pretty ludicrous. How in the world can a lowly shepherd, a nobody, a failure, a loser, a has-been, deliver an entire nation from Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth? And in this ensuing dialogue between God and Moses, which is recorded in Exodus 3 and 4, Moses kind of emerges as this pathetic character, the washed-up, lacks confidence, no self-esteem, has been. Don't know if he was missing a finger on his throwing hand or not. But his self-confidence is shot. His self-esteem is non-existent. And he offers a series of objections to God. Finally admits in Exodus 4, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Literally, it says, I'm heavy of mouth. And 
heaviest time. And when God counters, Moses begs God to send someone else. He's simply an unlikely candidate for this giant task of delivering Israel out of Egypt. And after assuring Moses of his presence, God tries to encourage him and challenge his faith at the same time. Exodus 3, verse 12. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God offers Moses a confirming sign. The sign is not something miraculous that generates faith right there on the spot. God simply knows that Moses would accomplish his mission and lead the people to this mountain. And at that point, uh, Moses would remember this conversation and realize that God's presence is with him all the time. And so Moses has this conversation with God. He has some other questions, some other objections. And we're picking up this morning right in the middle of that conversation. As we look at this passage, we have to realize we usually read this incorrectly. What I mean by that is usually we hear this passage as a passage about Moses. You know, it tells you how the Lord's choosing this great man of God and, and how uh, humble Moses is and how reluctant he is to draw attention to himself. But if you look at this passage carefully, it's quite clear that it's all about God. The passage is not about Moses all about God. It's not about Moses' struggles or doubts. It's about God and who he is and what he is and what he's about to do for his people. And so as we look at this passage, I want to focus your attention today on God himself. And we're going to start verse 13 and look at the unknown God. The unknown God. That should be the first blank there in your outline. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So in verse 13, we're told that after Moses has received God's answer, we have every reason to believe that Moses accepts the answer because the question he asks assumes he's going to do what God's told him to do. So verse 13, he follows up his first question with another question. What is it? that I'm to say to the people uh, of God, what, what should I say about you? Who should I say that you are? What do I tell them about you? They're going to ask me for your name. What do I say? And Moses' commission by God implies that he's got this special revelation from God. And since God always announced his name to the patriarchs when he came and visited them, it's only natural the people of God when approached by Moses with the announcement that God has appointed him as their leader that they would say something to the effect of okay then well tell us something about this God who is he what name did he give you when he spoke to you they're going to ask Moses the name by which God revealed himself as a way of reminder if you think back to the story of Jacob the last of the three named patriarchs here God speaks to him several times. And uh, speaks to him in a place called Bethel. And he reveals something about himself to Jacob that Jacob had not understood up to that point. There's several times this happens. One of them is in Genesis 28. It says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. 
Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. He said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So when God meets with you, you learn something new about God that you didn't know before. And so here in Exodus, Moses knows that the people of God are waiting. If he's going to announce himself as their new leader, as a prophet, as a spokesman for God, surely then God will give him something new, something special, his name to further reveal himself. Now you need to understand, Moses is not saying, this is a God I've never heard of before, I need to know your name. Moses is not saying, well, I've never worshipped this God before. I need to know something about you. This is no, Moses knowing that the people of God will expect that a prophet of God, one who's received the vision from God, who's encountered God and lived, will be able to tell the people of God something that God has said to him, especially his name, which carries great significance, that he'll say something new. And so God does that. Later on in Exodus 6, uh, God would remind Moses, says God spoke to Moses, said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. But now, for the first time, God makes his name known. And he makes his name known to Moses at a burning bush on the backside of the desert. However, even at this point, he's no longer, even if he's no longer the unknown God, surely he remains the uncaused God. The uncaused God. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me. Now, you know, when we start worship uh, this morning, we had an opening prayer, historically called an invocation. Uh, and sometimes during the music set or at the middle or at the end, Dave will pray. And then normally we have a prayer time. We don't today because it's communion. But normally we have a prayer time in the middle, historically called the pastoral prayer. And I pray with the children. And then I pray again right before the sermon, uh, historically called the prayer for illumination. When I finish, I'll pray again a closing prayer, historically called the prayer for application. And there'll be several prayers during communion, and then prayers with all the families, and then a final prayer and a benediction at the very end. That's a lot of praying. Have you ever stopped to think about who we're praying to? If we're doing all that praying, and we're spending all that time praying, who are we praying to? What do you call God when you pray? Just God? Or Lord? Or Father? Maybe Heavenly Father? Maybe you roll out the whole Trinity. Most people don't. Most people don't even think about it. Just whatever comes out of their mouth. And it's easy for us to forget that God has a name. But as a matter of fact, God does have a name. It's Yahweh. 
Y-A-H-W-E-H. That's the closest we can get in English. We're not sure it's exact. There's no exact, perfect translation. This is the name which he has assigned himself and by which he reveals himself. But this name's very different than the type of names that you or I have. We tend to be named after somebody. For example, I'm named after my father, and my oldest son is named after me. Or you may just like the name. Joanne and I like the name Rebecca, so we gave it to our daughter. And then came Sarah with an H, Daniel, and Samuel, because we're just working our way through the Old Testament. But in biblical thought, the name of someone was considered to be more than a label for identification each name meant something. For example, David means beloved. I'm sure you were wondering about that. But that's what it means. And so in the ancient world, names are chosen very, very carefully and a great attention to their significance. The Israelites believed that the name of a person defined the person. It represented the essence of that person. To know the name was to know something about the nature of that person. Thus the name of every Hebrew came with a message about that person. We saw that with Moses, didn't we? Exodus 2.10, she named him Moses because I drew him out of the water. And so the name Moses means to draw out, which is both symbolic of where he came from and symbolic of what he was going to do. And so God's name, Yahweh, is a special name with great meaning. When God used his name in the first person, it means I am. But when people use God's name, it's in the third person, and it means he is. This is not your basic, everyday sort of name. This name is special. This name is sacred. This name is holy. This name is fall down on your face in front of him sort of a name which is exactly what happened when godly men in the Old Testament uh, encountered God, uh, Joshua and David and Daniel and Ezekiel, when they're confronted with the name, face down in the dirt. In fact, the Israelites considered the name too holy to be spoken by human lips. Whenever they needed to say Yahweh, they would substitute the word Adonai, which means Lord, all small letters. Yahweh is normally spelled with all caps when it's translated as Lord in English. And if the name needs to be written, actually look this up, the scribes, it was so holy, they would take a ritual ceremonial cleansing bath before they wrote it and then would destroy the pen afterwards. And it's not because they were weird or superstitious. It was because they had an intense reverence for God's name in ancient Israel, it's really awe for the presence and power of God himself. For God's person and God's character are all concentrated in God's name. God never gives a definition for the name Yahweh. And Moses never asked for one. And many scholars wish that he had. There are hundreds and hundreds of scholarly articles on the study of God's And it's raised healthy discussions 
Because very quickly you realize, I don't know. And it gets you thinking about who God is and what God's like. Most probably, we don't know for sure, it's a combination of the present tense form, I am, and the causative tense, I cause to be. Yahweh then seems to mean that I am and I cause. That God is the one who is and God is the one who causes. Why is that important? Because we need a big God. We need a God who exists but was not caused. He is an uncaused God. Though he creates, he was never created. Though he makes, he was never made. Though he causes, he was never caused. Hence the psalmist proclamation in Psalm 90, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You think about it, you and I are governed. The weather dictates what we wear. The terrain tells us how to travel. Gravity dictates our speed, health determines our strength. We may challenge these forces and alter them slightly, but we can never remove them. God, our uncaused God, doesn't check the weather. He makes it. He doesn't defy gravity. He created it. He isn't affected by health. He has no body. Jesus said, John 4, God is spirit. Since he has no body, he has no limitations. He's equally active in Liberia, Lithuania, and Luxembourg as he is in Leesburg and Loudoun. I had to look up countries that begin with L. King David asked, Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If God is the uncaused God, and if God is the one who is, then he's also the unchanging God. The unchanging God. Verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He's the unchanging God. Think about that. Do you know anyone who goes around saying, I am? Neither do I. When we say I am, we always add another word. I am happy. I am sad. I am strong. I am dazed. But God plainly states, I am, and adds nothing else. You are what, we want to ask. I am, he replies. God needs no descriptive word because he never changes. God is what he is. He is what he always has been. This is what God is saying. I have no beginning or end. I always am. There will never be a time in which it could be said of me that I was. And there never was a time which could be said of me, he will be. I always am. No beginning, no end. Put it another way, absolutely no power or being has caused me because I'm the cause and source of all power and being. Now this has been called the immutability of God. The absolute unchangeable nature of God. God depends on nothing. Everything depends on him. 
Now, at this point, it's easy to get philosophical. The immutability of God. I want you to all have slightly higher self-esteem today because you now know that word. The immutability of God is an incommunicable attribute of God, which means he doesn't share it with people. A communicable attribute something like love. God is love, but we're able to love. He shares that attribute with us. Immutability, unchangeable nature, that just belongs to God. And so he doesn't share it with people, whereby God is unchanging in his character, will, and covenant promises. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. His immutability motivates the psalmist to declare, Psalm 102, but you are the same and your years have no end. The writer is saying, you're the one who is. You never change. Yahweh is an unchanging God. We see that throughout Scripture. There's dozens of examples, just a few. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews 6, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, a promise and an oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Because God's promises and God's purposes are based on the solid rock foundation of God's holy and righteous character, the attributes of God, his grace, his glory, his love, his holiness, are the bottom line. We can trust in God's purposes. We can trust in God's promises. We can trust in God's oath simply because it is God who makes them. Unchanging, uncaused, ungoverned. Only a fraction of God's attributes. But aren't they enough to give you a glimpse of your Savior? Centuries later, when the Lord Jesus Christ repeatedly declared of himself, I am it was to this principle that he's bearing witness, the faithfulness of God to his promises, to his oath, to himself. Jesus said, Gospel of John, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I left one out. I am the vine and the branches. Most clearly, John 8, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying, I am the God who met Moses on the mountain. And I am here to keep my promises because I'm faithful and true and I will save sinners for myself. Don't we need this kind of shepherd? Don't we need an unchanging Shepherd, God is an unchanging God. He is an uncaused God. He is an ungoverned God. He is the great I am. 
Lloyd Douglas, who's the author of The Robe, famous book, several other great novels. And when he attended college, he lived in a boarding house. And on the first floor lived a retired wheelchair-bound music professor. And every morning, Lord, Lloyd Douglas would uh, go down and knock on the door and stick his head in the door of the teacher's apartment, and he would ask the same question. Well, sir, what's the good news? And the professor sitting in his wheelchair would pick up a tuning fork like this. And he would tap it on the side of his wheelchair and say, that's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune, but my friend, that is middle C. You and I need a middle C. Haven't you had enough change in your life? Relationships change, health changes, the weather changes, but Yahweh, the creator God who ruled the earth last night, is the same Yahweh who rules it today. Same conviction, same plan, same mood, same love. He never changes. You can no more alter God than a pebble alters the rhythm of the Pacific. Yahweh is our middle sea. A still point in a changing world. Don't we need a still point? Don't we need an unchanging God? You know, in these days of terrifying global crises, global terrorism, global epidemics. Isn't this doctrine of God something we need to cling to? This is the God we need. Not a God who's just a bigger version of ourselves, eager to please, emotionally vulnerable, surprised when we struggle, saddened by pain, powerless to help. Who needs a God like that? When chaos and darkness and sin and sadness and death and disease puncture our life. A God like that will never be enough. What you need is a God uh, that met Moses on a mountain in Exodus 3. Who stands above it all, who's greater than it all, who is unlike it all, who is over it all, who's governing it all, who is superintending it all, but independent of it all, who is unaffected by it all, who's not a victim, but a deliverer. That's the God we need. No other God can satisfy. No other God will do. That's why the psalmist said, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength of very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Only a God like this is enough for hearts that are breaking and broken in a world like ours. Just as much, if not more so, we need an uncaused God. No one breathed life into him. No one fathered him. No one gave birth to him. No one caused him. No one brought him forth. The Apostle Paul writes, Colossians 1, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
And so the Apostle John writes, Revelation 4, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And since no one brought him forth, no one can take him out. Does he fear a hurricane? Does he tremble at a tornado? Hardly. Yahweh sleeps through storms and calms the winds with a word. Cancer doesn't trouble him and cemeteries don't disturb him. He was here before they came. He'll be here after they're gone. He is uncaused. He is unchanging. He is ungoverned. Counselors can comfort you in the storm, but you need a God who can still the storm. Friends can hold your hand at your deathbed, but you need a God who's defeated the grave. Philosophers can debate the meaning of life, but you need a God who can declare the meaning of life. You need this God. His name is Yahweh. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us. Thank you that in these last days you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, who is the display of your heart and your character revealed in your name. This morning as we come to the Lord's table, we pray that we may see him. We've heard him speak in his word, read and preached. May we see him in the word visible in the bread and the cup. May we be enabled by your spirit to have our souls nourished and our faith strengthened by Christ this morning. For this we give you name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now.